I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to the Writer's Routine Podcast. This is where we get tips and advice from successful creative people by taking a look at the secrets of their working day. We find out actually how they get stuff done. Today, uh, we are chatting to the screenwriter and now author, Paul A. Mendelssohn. Uh, he's talking about releasing his debut adults and kids book in the same year, been very busy. Uh, we'll also find out what it was like for him writing one of the biggest primetime BBC sitcoms, and we'll hear about the biggest secret that he learned while working on his first novel. Don't get it right, get it written. And so the first time you put something down on paper, you sort of splurge it out. I think in America, sometimes they call it the vomit draft. And then you go over it and try and get it to the best shape you can. So stay right there. It's all on the way on this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along then. Uh, My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for giving us a download uh, and and giving us a listen as well. We're we're around 10 episodes into the writer's routine now. And if you've been with us the whole way through and if you've learned anything from the show about ways to improve your own writing, well, I've got a way that you can test it out and you can help both of us out. Why don't you get out uh, your phone, uh, your, your iPad, your tablet, whatever you want, get onto your laptop too and get onto the iTunes podcast store and use your vastly improved writing style to leave this show a review. That's what you need to do. Uh, Find us on the podcast store, Writer's Routine. uh, And if you could leave some lovely things about the show, that would be amazing. Also, five stars, that is five stars, goes a long way as as well. Also, leave your name in there as well. So I know that you're there. I know that you're listening. Maybe I'll say hello uh, on next week's show as well. That's what you can do to really help. Get to the iTunes podcast store and leave Writer's Routine a review. Our guest on the show this week, uh, it's Paul A. Mendelssohn. He is an author, he's a scriptwriter, and he's a creative who's been pretty successful doing it as well. He was in charge of one of the biggest uh, BBC primetime sitcoms in his time as well. We'll talk a bit more about that in a sec. Uh, Now, he's released his debut kids and adult books in the same year. He's been a busy guy. Uh, Do you remember the TV show my hero you remember Ardlo Hanlon uh, you know he was the superhero in that 
uh, wore the red and yellow suit. Uh, Hugh Dennis, I think, cropped up as the, the really slimy, worm-like Dr. Piers. And do you remember Ardell and, and his brother from New York? They did that alien handshake and the catchphrase thing. I think it was Zeet, Znat, Zeet. Yeah, that. Well, Paul Mendelssohn, he wrote that show. He invented the whole thing. So we'll talk about that in the chat too, because I'm really interested in moving from screenwriting and being in charge of a huge uh, BBC show, as it was at the time, to then sitting by yourself in a cafe writing a book and there's quite a lot of cafe chat in this talk also our distinguished diary today it features the weird and wonderful writing routine of one of the most eccentric writers in history and one of the books that he wrote as well inspired one of the 20th century's biggest films that's on the way after our chat then the meat of the show let's get into it uh finding out the writer's routine of paul a mendelssohn what I usually see in front of me when I write is the rest of Costa Coffee and Pinner. I, I write at home as well, but I've always written in cafes because writing is essentially quite a lonely business. And, and when you work in cafes, at least you get some sort of semblance of people around you and people chat. And because it's in my local area, people I know come in. And as long as you don't listen too carefully to the conversation going on at the next table, you can actually get on with, with quite a lot of work. So what I'm looking at is uh, is Chiara and Tonya and the and the people, the lovely people who work at um, Costa Coffee and Pinner. Your debut adult novel uh, was released at the start of the year. It's In the Matter of Isabel. Talk me through your average day when you were working on that book, from the moment that you woke up to the moment you went to bed? From the moment that I woke up, I would, I would do a walk uh, from my house, possibly round to, to, to the centre of Pinner where I live, or I might walk up to, there's a golf course nearby where there's some lovely greenery and you can go so high that actually from there you can even see the, uh, the Shard and Wembley Stadium. So that's, that's quite nice. Then I'll walk down into, into Pinner and I'll sit down at the cafe and I'll get my little iPad out and I will, I will start to write and I'd give myself probably a certain number of words that I want to have done in the morning and then I'll come home if I've done that number of words and I'll go over them at home in the afternoon to make sure that they read or write because somebody once told me a long long time ago don't get it right get it written and so the first time you put something down on paper you sort of splurge it out I think in America sometimes they call it the vomit draft and then you go over it and try and get it to the best shape you can. But then, of course, there are editors who, who, who come in and look at it when, when, the, when the, the first manuscript's finished. But that's basically the, the day. And, um, and I'm relatively old, so I've got grandchildren, so that takes up a fair bit of my time as well. Talk me through you having to revise, as you say, the vomit draft yes. uh, in the afternoon. How much work do you tend to do on that? And then what do you leave for your editors to do? Well, I mean, I'll work on it to make it make it read as good as it can in the afternoon. But then when the whole uh, manuscript is done, then I'll go over it again and again and again. Uh, so it's almost the best shape that I can do. Then I'll send it to a, to a, an editor, particularly used an editor from a from a, a company, consultancy company. And with the first novel, he virtually tore it to shreds. Um, but he loved the the style and he loved the writing and he loved the dialogue, which, which was hopefully what I can do because I'm a scriptwriter by trade. Um, but there were certain things which, and it wasn't the structure, it was certain things that were sort of wrong with it in, in, in the way I'd approached it, which 
seemed like it was very damning, but actually was also very easy to fix. Because it was meant to be written in the first person by a young guy looking back when he was a very naive young lawyer, um, I tried to be clever and kept talking about ways he would suggest, well, I'm not really a writer, and he'd start off the, the first line, I think, which I loved all the time, and that was what gave me the idea to, to the book, was, I don't do scenery, which was his way of saying, you're not going to get lovely, you know, descriptions, which probably is true of me as well, in a sense. But then the, the, the editor said, quite rightly, this was just too knowing. You don't have to pretend. Uh, when you're somebody writing in the first person of the book, you sort of accept that the person can write. He doesn't have to apologise for for not being a novelist, but being the person who we who who is meant to be. So I took a lot of that out, and and I cut a lot of that, and just got to the bones of the story and the relationship, and it just worked much better. And I certainly don't don't miss those eight ten thousand words that I took out. I sort of set myself thousand fifteen hundred or fifteen hundred words, something like that. I started doing that when I was doing television uh, comedy. I worked out that in an average half-hour episode, there are about 350 speeches. A speech is just when one person says something, then another person says something, that's another speech. And I worked out if there were 350 speeches, and I did 70 a day, then by the end of a five-day week, I'd have the first draft of an episode. <laughs> then obviously I'd go over it, and the producers would go over it, but that's what I sort of set myself. I'm quite disciplined, because I worked in advertising for 17 years, and... You know, you didn't have the chance to just sit around and wait for the muse to strike. You you had deadlines, and and um, and to start with, I was in advertising, and then bizarrely, I did actually write a short novel about a house that was haunted by a Jewish ghost, and I was working with a, a film a film director. He was doing some Heinz spaghetti commercials for me, but he was a film director called Nicholas Rogue, who who directed things like Don't Look Now and The Witches and The Man Who Fell to Earth, and he. He loved it, and that was how I got into into script writing. And I loved writing dialogue. I'd written a lot of sort of award-winning radio commercials. After that came probably the most successful one, which which was called My Hero. Obviously, with scripts, they're very visual because you're working with um, with cameras, and and TV and film are, are visual media. Whereas when you're writing books. You have to create the pictures in the uh, in the reader's head, so that's that's possibly the biggest difference. So you have to describe a lot more. You you have to um, you can't allow for facial expressions. You know everything has to be in a sense down there. But I drew a lot of interestingly. I do a lot of radio plays, so I'm used to actually painting pictures in people's heads and people when they've read my books have said they're very visual for obvious reasons so doing a lot of commercials and now i guess radio plays but mainly the commercials and tv uh, you've got to get a lot away very quickly it's got to be very tight it's got to be very concise how do you think that has influenced now your writing as a novelist to make sure that it's not baggy and that you you are economical with your words that's a brilliant question actually because because people have said when they've read my books, that they're very tight and very economical. And I think you're, you're exactly right. It's because when you're writing TV commercials, you've got 30 seconds and you have to tell a story and you have to tell everything. So it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful training. And even with television, you still have a finite length. You've got 30 minutes to tell a story. Books 
I mean, a book can be anything from 150 pages to 1,000 pages. So in a sense, you have to impose that discipline on yourself. Do you think that comes natural to you from your past? Yes. Uh, or, or, did you have to work at it at the time? No, that's... that. Interestingly, I think it's probably having a low attention span that <laughs> that actually... Um, I liked the short, the shortness, the brevity of it, which is why I like 30-minute um, TV. I wouldn't be very good at, I think, long-running series. You know, I couldn't write 13-hour-long episodes. All my um, TV has been family stuff. I, I like writing things that people of all ages can watch. Aside from anything else, it's actually, it's actually harder because there are certain areas which you can't go into, there's certain language you can't use, there's certain concepts you've got to float around. You can be adult in, you know, in the ideas sometimes, but not necessarily so much in the, in the way that they're expressed. You know, although one doesn't necessarily get credit for, for this, I mean, I personally think it's, it's harder to be clean and family-oriented and really funny because you've got to work with, with, with less, in a sense. Niche technicalities of it. Are you writing to spec with My Hero? Uh, or Like, did the BBC know who you are and say, Paul, we want you to write uh, a, a prime-time BBC tea-time no, comedy? I, I, wish it worked like, I wish it worked like that. You know, even, I mean, it's so strange. You have, a, you have a big series, like May to December was BAFTA-nominated, ran for six years, then So Haunt Me ran for a few years, and still you go back to square one and you're only as good as your next idea. So I wrote, I wrote my hero on, 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 on spec, and bizarrely, I went to the BBC and, the head, and, and, and a particular executive really liked it. Then we went to the head of comedy at the time and he said, well, I really like it aside from the superhero elements. And I thought, well, what else is there? It was the daftest thing I'd ever heard said. So I went away with my tail between my legs. But then I showed it to a, who a, to a director who, who was a friend of mine who directed So Haunt Me and he loved it. And he showed it to the head of comedy of the BBC and he had produced Father Ted. And he said, I think Ardlo Hanlon, who played Dougal, Father Dougal in, in, in Father Ted, would love this. He's been looking for a new comedy and he hasn't found anything he likes. So I'll try this. And it went to Ardle and Ardle said, oh, this is, this is the first comedy I've been able to see in my, in, in my head since, since Father Ted. I really want to do this. And because we had Ardle, then they could give me the money to write the series. But until then... It was, you know, I was doing doing it on spec, and I'm still writing on on spec. Now, it, this is quite a touchy question, and it's not in any way how I feel about this. Um, but I know that tea time comedies like that on BBC One that are quite broad, um, that are uh, shot in front of an audience, can be quite lampooned and derided in kind of comedy elite. How do you feel about that? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, you say tea time, they're 8.30, so I suppose it's pre-Watershed. I mean, they're not, you know, so early, because they're not in children's TV time. Oh, yeah, I remember with, with um, my my family, one of the reviews that I remember, I wasn't involved in my family, but I had friends who were, and they ran for years, and one of the reviews, I think, in one of the newspapers was inexplicably popular. And we think, well, it's not inexplicable, it's popular because people are enjoying it and watching it. You do get fed up because... You, because you know you're not going to be talked about at dinner parties. You know, it's, it's not flea bag and it's not um, catastrophe and it's not one of those ones. And you probably aren't going to be in the first in line when the awards come out. So, so in that sense, but you know you're going to get a vastly bigger audience 
than um, any of those comedies have. I mean, when May to December came out, we, we had about 13, 14 million people. I mean, when, when um, My Hero was out, it was about six or seven or eight million. So actually, I'm sort of writing for the people out there. We will get more from Paul A. Mendelssohn in just a tick. Uh, now, if you're a bit of a fiend for a rom-com, right, and if you love a good whimper over an Audrey Hepburn movie, well, stay right there. You can find out the secrets behind one of your favourite films next. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, I think our podcast, Writer's Routine, it's good for a few things in my mind. Not only do you get tips and tricks from successful authors who have been there, who have done it, and they can give you advice for getting your own book that's knocking around your head, you know, out, uh, through your arm, down onto paper, fingers crossed, publish as well. Also, the show is very good at at helping me learn about internet things, uh, because I've been busy recently uh, making a website for the show, and I think it's already, you know, that there's still a few bits to clean and gloss a few i's to dot a few t's to cross and a few widgets to embed in there as well but if you get online you can have a nice look for yourself it is writersroutine.com on there you can get in touch with the show so you can give me any thoughts for writers that you would like to hear questions you'd like me to ask them as well any opinions you've really got about the show are good i might not read them out but it's nice that you're there Uh, also we've got links so you can subscribe to the show download them through any means that you fancy all the podcast providers are there and also uh, you can listen back to all our old episodes as well Uh, i've spent some time on it it would be really good if you had a look it is writersroutine.com now then 
today's distinguished diary, it features the weird and wonderful writing routine of, of dare I say it, quite a weird uh, and definitely wonderful writer. It's Truman Capote. Now, Capote is known for Breakfast at Tiffany's. He wrote the novella that inspired the huge, uh, one of the 20th century's biggest films, uh, and also his true crime documentary, but also kind of fiction uh, book, In Cold Blood, which detailed a series of real-life murders in Kansas. And he was quite an eccentric man too. His routine was absolutely individual, right? He told the Paris Review uh, in 1957, (laughs) it's a great phrase, he was a horizontal author and he couldn't think unless he was lying down. Do you ever think that you should be a a horizontal worker at times? You know, you can't really be bothered to get up and go to work today. Boss, it's fine, I'm I'm working horizontally today. (laughs) So yeah, he did all of his stuff lying down on a couch or in bed and that he'd always need a cigarette as well and a coffee handy. Apparently he would puff and sip and puff and sip while he worked. He wrote for around four hours each day. That's all. Revising the work in the late evening, he he wrote first off by longhand in pencil, then he moved this onto a typewriter. And you know I said how he worked horizontally? Well, he did the typing in bed as well. Uh, He would balance a pretty weighty metal typewriter on his knees. And that coffee in the morning, yeah, that would move into sherry and then martinis gradually through the day. The real interesting thing, though, about his writing routine uh, was the superstitions that he believed in uh, that helped his success. <laughs> Get this. He wouldn't allow three finished cigarettes in the same ashtray. Only three butts were allowed in there, and he couldn't begin or end any work on a Friday. It's a bit of an excuse, that, isn't it, to give yourself a day off, I think, if you're going to finish on the Friday. No, stop. Oh, I must need three more days. I can only finish this on a Monday. Uh, he was also strange with numbers as well. He wouldn't dial a telephone number or book a hotel room if he had the dig- added the digits up in his brain and it came up with an unlucky number. Again, it's very precious of Truman. I'm not staying in this hotel room today, no. It's room 12, 1 and 2, that makes 13. I simply cannot be here. Yeah, it's kind of an excuse only to stay in the best possible rooms available. So, yeah, Truman was odd with numbers, but he was fantastic with words, and it helped him write some of the 20th century's most revered books. Right, it's time to get back then with my chat with Paul A. Mendelssohn, the scriptwriter turned author. He's got two books out at the moment, so we'll talk about the, the difference and the curiosities between writing for different ages in a little bit. Also, uh, he will tell us the secrets of making things funny. At the start of the year, you released your debut novel. Where did that come from? Uh, well, it's called In the Matter of Isabel, and it's inspired by a case that I handled when I was a lawyer. And it was a, a custody case involving a foreign national. I, I won't go into the, the details. And, and, and the book is, is, fict- is fictional, though it was inspired by, by a particular relationship, in a sense. And I'd always wanted to, to write this story. It was It was interesting that, that um, a woman who was considerably older than myself relied on me, who was knew nothing about family law, almost straight out of university, to win her child back. And I thought that was an interesting interesting relationship when the, when the power was in the hands of, of a youngster, really, and this sophisticated older woman really did, you know, didn't know what to do. How much did you know about the book while you sat down to write it on the very first day? 
Um, well, I knew that I had a structure because I worked very hard on the structure because, you, you know, when you're writing a, a film and you have a finite time, you do work very hard on the, on, the, on, the, on the structure of a thing. And I knew that I had the dialogue because dialogue's my strength. But what I had to do was decide whose voice it was, it was going to be in because that's, in a sense, what the novel was about. What an, a novel is about, it has to have a voice. And, and I chose to have it narrated by um, my hero, the, the young lawyer, but 12 years on, looking back at, um, at how he is now and how he was then and, and really quite embarrassed by how he was then because he took terrible in, in the book he took terrible advantage of the of the client and was more interested in her because she was gorgeous rather than um, in the case although he does get more involved in the case as time goes on what was the most surprisingly difficult element of writing a novel f- from someone with a background in extensive screenplay writing and and actually having to to, to, to crack out a hundred thousand words yeah well, in I think one it's, form i think it's that it's 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 I think what the hardest thing is, is I was trying to write the book and then I kept getting diverted because I had to make a living and I had, you know, there were other things that I was writing, maybe radio or sort of TV development or or something like that. And so I had to go away from the book and then come back to it and try and still get in the, in the zone. But I'll tell you a good trick and I'm, you know, this isn't original to me. I think probably most writers do this. If you know where you you're going to be at the end end of um, the day if you go, if you know what the last scene is don't finish it or don't finish the chapter so that when you come back the next day it's easier because you're not starting a fresh chapter you're not starting a fresh scene you're just completing the scene or the chapter that you'd left halfway through the day before and that's a much easier thing because that's already in your head i think for me because i'm a scriptwriter i I quite like to read some of the stuff out aloud um, because to me it's about rhythm. It's about how, how it's that you know when a sentence is right or wrong or a piece of dialogue is right or wrong. For me, if you hear it out, if you hear it out loud and you can hear, does it, does it flow? And then sometimes you'll change a word, you'll put a word in another place just because it's like, I mean, I, I'm not, I mean, I like music, but I'm not musical. But I imagine it's the same sort of thing. You know when a tune is right and, and, or when there's a beat too, too many or a beat too few. In a sense, you instinctively know or you think you know that it's funny. But until somebody else reads it or, so, or you work with somebody else, you're not totally sure. And I think it's often interesting that sometimes when I've seen this, when, when comedy writers have had some fantastic successes, they sometimes think that they know what's funny. So they don't allow other people into the mix, like script editors or directors. They virtually say, I know this is funny. And often the, the later work is not as good as their early work when they had a lot of editing. So I think you're never that good that you can't actually it can't actually be made better by by somebody else somebody you respect i mean i would never i would never take a note or do something that i didn't agree with but i know there are people out there who can make my work an awful lot better than it is 
Talk to me about the decision now to write a children's book. Uh, it, it's losing Arthur. Uh, when was the first moment that this story crept into your mind? Well, the thing that got me into this business, I think I mentioned about Nicholas Rogue directing a spaghetti commercial years ago. And, and Well, the, the, the spaghetti commercial was about a little girl who has an imaginary friend called Eric. And Eric turn, only turns up when there's Heinz spaghetti. And, we, and, and they were lo- it was a lovely little commercial. They were, they were Geordie family. And it, they were actually the first sitcoms I wrote. They were little 30-second sitcoms. And I'd always liked the idea of imaginary friends. And I hadn't seen it done that much. And it just seemed so interesting. I didn't set out to write a children's book because I don't regard myself particularly as a children's book writer. I set out... I mean, if I have a... The story comes first and the idea. And if I've had an idea then the idea tells me who it's who it's aimed at. So when I say think that there's a, a young lad who has an imaginary friend called Arthur and his mother, who's a single mother, um, gets so fed up with, with, with this relationship that she grabs this piece of nothing and puts it in a box and posts it to his father in Scotland just to get rid of it, then that obviously lends itself to being um, a book that children will enjoy. So you've got this idea, the very initial idea in your head. Yeah. Uh, then what do you do? What do you do before you start writing it? Are you plotting it at I all? Plotted, or... plotted it all out. T- t- talk to me about that. How, how well, extensively are you doing that? Well, I, th- well, I think I'd, I mean, I think I'd, I'd plotted it the way I would plot a, a film. You know, I, I, think, I think in terms of scenes and I think in terms of structure and I think how would, how would you know... A lot of things happen. Like it's first of all, it's in Hackney, then it's in Scotland, then it's then the little boy is trying to is is, is going. He leaps on a train to Manchester because he gets on the wrong train because he's running away from his sister who's been supposed to be looking after him. And so, I sort of plotted the logic, and I wanted just to be over a weekend because it gives it a sort sort of intensity and a structure that that it happens Friday and it's all sorted out by 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 Sunday but with lots of adventures. And um, and so it, I think very careful, very careful plotting. Because I couldn't. But sometimes you don't quite know where something is going to go. Uh, if you, I find, if I plot too religiously, first of all, plotting is 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 not the most creative exercise compared to writing. And if I plot too religiously, it sort of stifles you. I sometimes. I think the creativity comes from somewhere inside yourself that you that that you just have to trust. So you've got this. You've decided that, that it's for kids. How are you then making sure that it appeals to kids and that they well, get it and felt like they've been talking to? Because I'm a writer, I don't think in my head. I don't think about going down to a, another level of understanding. I think that comes naturally. I know that I can't particularly use certain certain words and, and concepts have to be a bit simpler and I've got to make it exciting and funny. But I'm not saying children's writers talk down to the audience because obviously the good ones don't. But I, I just regard them as, as adults who maybe don't have the... The, the same experience as, as, as some of the other adults. You are right. Um, uh, good children's writers, they don't talk down or pander no. or patronise, but no. they do, they do realise that there are certain things that children like and there are reasons yes. why adult novels can be too long, too exhaustive uh, with fairly lengthy sentences that just it won't appeal yes, to kids. exactly. How much did you keep that in your mind as as in the style of the prose while you were writing yeah, I th- I, again reading it in my head 
you know, talking it, listening, listening to it in my head, I realized that, that, that um, I had to temper it a bit and some of the structures had to be a little bit simpler and, and also keep, you know, keep it moving. I mean, you're not going to have a lot of scenes where people discuss the state of the world or, 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 or you know, it was action, 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 and they're leaping on, train, on trains and getting thrown out of cars and there's, there's lots of monsters of sorts. Um, and so I think of that, but also because I tend to think visually because it's my training, then it was just making it seem visual on the page. Uh, are you back to writing in uh, adult fiction now? Yes, I'm writing. A, I'm writing a, a, an adult novel. How has it been reverting back to adults from after writing for kids? Well, um, the, actually, the kids one, although it came out, the kids one I wrote before the adult one. So I wrote that before um, in the matter of Isabel. Well, then, and how has it been writing uh, a novel which isn't inspired by something that happened in real life, or is it? Your newest one. Well, it sort of, it sort of is. Um, my wife and I went on um, honeymoon to a particular place and then went back 25 years later to the same place. And I said, wouldn't it be fun if we met our honeymooning selves there? And, uh, and that was the, the inspiration for, for this particular thing. I won't go into too much detail because it's not really worked out yet. But um, I'm enjoying doing it. But I'm also, I'm also trying to do some TV comedy as well at the moment. Um, You're flitting between novels and screenplays. So here I'm flitting between be, between the the things we've got with myself and my and my um, uh, and a writing partner because I I do sometimes write with a with another person which is fantastic which is which is so much more fun. So that is it then for this week's episode of Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Paul A. Mendelssohn for coming over and having a chat with me. His books Losing Arthur and In the Manner of Isabel they're out right now. And if you do fancy buying them, we've got handy links on the website. It's Writer's routine.com and who knows then you can chuck a few more quid in his piggy bank which inevitably goes towards buying cappuccinos at the Costa Coffee in Pinner. I got confirmation of a huge guest for the writer's routine actually the other day. Uh, One of the biggest writers in the country. I don't really want to say their name just yet though you know I don't want to speak too soon, don't want to count my chickens so just please do take my word for this. Uh, One of the biggest writers in the country, fingers crossed, will be on this show soon so yeah tell all the aspiring authors and creatives that you know because they will want to hear the tips and the secrets of creative working that this guy hopefully will have to share and remember you can hear all the old episodes of writer's routine on our website it's writersroutine.com make sure you subscribe and download the episodes as well through itunes while you're there leave us a handy review please give us five stars as well that would be very helpful you can follow us on twitter as well we are at writers pod the email is writersroutine at gmail.com and that's about it we'll see you next week with another episode of writer's routine Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.